We're continuing our studies in the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at this section in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, and especially verses 14 through 16, but let's read them all. You are the salt of the earth, verse 13, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Uh, We took a look at that last time. And then the Lord says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Of course, you can't read this without remembering that Jesus said he was the light of the world. He says that in the Gospel of John several times, chapters 8 and 12 especially. And it's a great um, metaphor, really. Then we realize that if Jesus is the light, then the world is in darkness. Last week we talked about the whole idea of salt and light, salt assumes that the world is corrupt and needs to be preserved. Light presumes that the world is dark and darkening and and needs some illumination. And really, Jesus assumes that his hearers understand that the world is in a kind of spiritual darkness. It's not an argument that he's bringing. uh, He's not teaching them that the world is a dark place. They they understand this. He's telling them what the source of light is. Uh, And we as Christians... We would acknowledge that. I mean, as you, we look around the world, it, it, more and more young couples, for example, if you talk to any Christian young couple, uh, it, well, in any generation it seems true, but it, it's getting worse, they're concerned about bringing children into the world. You know, it's like, what, what's the world coming to and what's the world going to be like and all of these kinds of things. And uh, not just nuclear threats or jihad or whatever, Although I, I did catch a story yesterday about, uh, I guess Ahmadinejad, our friend from Iran, is is uh, giving billions of dollars to Venezuela and other countries closer to us to spread anti-American feeling, uh, and so it, it's just it's a serious world that we live in. Uh, but the moral and the and, and darkness, the the corruption, you know, all of those kinds of things. So so we understand that. So this isn't an argument about whether the world is dark or not. It is. And it's getting worse, not better. Religion, man-made religion, which they all are other than biblical uh, Christianity, philosophy, even the sciences to a certain extent uh, in in one dimension, uh, are mankind's attempts to illuminate spiritual darkness. Uh, And so uh, I think generally people, they understand that there's a problem. Uh, John Paul Sartre called it the problem of man, and then he spun out his existential philosophy which uh, ended up just being absurd. And they said, what I, what I like about in, intellectual people is that they come to an absurd conclusion. They say, oh, yeah, and that's, that's absurd. You know? and, so, and, and that's the answer. Uh, and, and so it's, it's pretty crazy stuff. Uh, so those are all attempts to illuminate the spiritual darkness. People in their, I was thinking about this. Um, People in their vain philosophies remind me of bioluminescent creatures that exist in the deep depths of the ocean. And it's probably just because I've been watching too much Finding Nemo uh, with my granddaughter. But uh, Although there's a lot of great spiritual analogies in Finding Nemo. I don't know that they meant there to be, but uh, there are. Uh, 
but you know, and, and you've seen these, most of you. They, they generate this little point of light. Uh, you know, they're down in the depths, and they 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 do this little point of light kind of a thing. Uh, but it's really nothing compared to the vastness of the darkness of the ocean surrounding them. I mean, you you know, you have to be right on top of them to to see this tiny point of light. And living in that darkness those creatures take on what we would consider a hideous appearance. I mean, have you ever getting real, you know, you've seen those specials, National Geographic, they get real deep and they're like, you know, these, I mean, these just nasty looking fish that they bring up from there that are just the ugliest. They're, they look like mutants because they live in that darkness and they have this little point of light. And, and it's, it's maybe silly, but I think of the human race that way. We, the, we have this, existential philosophy but from heaven's point of view it's this it's not even really light but it's this speck in the vast darkness and from heaven's point of view you look hideous i mean you know as you live in that darkness you you just look hideous and so it's that's that's what's what jesus is talking about jesus comments weren't about the darkness in the world that was assumed his comments were about the light for the dark world and basically what he's saying is that you and i as his followers would reflect his light within all the surrounding darkness. Uh, and so part of this is a sun-moon kind of a situation where the sun is our source of light and the moon reflects the sun's light. And so Jesus is always the source and we are the reflection. And so uh, we're not really looking for, in a mystical sense, the inner light. You know, we're, we're looking for Jesus, the outer light, and then he is able to reflect through us. Uh, Jesus moves to a second illustration, really, although all of these uh, I want to show you, I think, go together. But his second illustration, he says, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Another movie, uh, but it's a good one. I can't help but think of, of The Return of the King, uh, the Tolkien movie, because there's a scene in there, a little bit different. It's not really a city on a hill. It is a city that is a hill. Uh, there, Gandalf is riding Shadowfax, and he's coming with Pippin to the city of Gondor. And they ride and ride and ride, and finally they kind of come around a curve, and there, there it is. It's just beautiful and resplendent. It's, it's carved out of a mountainside, this white city of kings, and, and it's just, it's, you know, it's a stunning visual that they did in the movie and stuff, and, and you can't miss it. You know, it's, it's, it's just there. And that's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. Uh, and one thing about this, just to, as a little aside, uh, a lot of times when Jesus is teaching, I think we can assume that he's in a setting where he can point to things. Uh, you know, a sower went out to sow. He, you know, he didn't have to point to a sower, but chances are there was one, and he was just picking up that analogy. And it may be that he was on the mount here, and, and there was a, a city within range that he could point to. And at any rate, his the hearers would have understood the illustration, but sometimes visuals are good. I think they can be overdone, and we don't want to depend on them, but there are, I guess what I'm getting at, there's different ways of teaching, uh, different ways of presenting information, and uh, Jesus was a master at simple, illustrative teaching, using his surroundings. Uh, of course, he was teaching in the open air for the most part, uh, it, where you have a lot more opportunity to uh, have illustration, uh, but um, he, he used visual aids to a, a good purpose. He was a master uh, at doing that. Now, the symbolism here is that the city obviously is higher, that it's somehow safer because it's above its surroundings. 
It's less vulnerable to attack because the approach of enemies can be seen. There's a bunch of things you can list about what's good about a city on a hill. But the primary emphasis in our context seems to be that a weary night traveler suddenly looks up, sees it, sees its lights shining, and is guided to safety and security along his way. Just think about travel in those days. You know, just kind of, you know, Kenny knows a little bit about this because he goes up into the high country where no one goes, you know, where no man has gone before, basically, and stuff. But even they take flashlights and things like that. I mean, you're traveling in first century with, you know, maybe a little oil lamp, you know, that gives about this much light. And I mean, it, it can get pretty dark sometimes. And, and uh, it, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're hurrying to get there and you turn the corner and there's the city on the hill. And now you have something to guide you in the pitch darkness. Uh, and so uh, you're guided to safety and security along his way. And, and a lot of Jesus' listeners would understand this, you know, in, in the sense of, of getting to where they're going. And then in verse 15, he gives us another symbol or another illustration, really. He says, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So here's the progression that you can see here. He talks about the world, and then he talks about a city in the world, and then he talks about houses that are in that city. And so really, there's, there, it all kind of goes together. So there's the whole world with a city in it and houses in the city. And the light is emanating from the lamps that are in the houses, filling the city, which illuminates the world around it. So it's, it's just a very compact but beautiful illustration. And then he says that no one would light a lamp only to put it under a basket to keep it from being seen. Uh, that, that, this is really the heart of what he's getting at. Everybody understands everything up until now. He says, you, you know... We're all familiar. Jesus said, hey, we're all familiar with cities on a hill. The world's in darkness. We need light. City on a hill, individual houses giving off light. Uh, no one would, as an indiv- in their house, would light a lamp and then put it under a basket. And so what follows here is that you are the lit lamp. And you should be shining right where you are. And the light emanates from you into the surrounding darkness. And then I, we could make some arguments about, you know, believers taken together as the city in terms of the church or those kinds of things. I I don't think that would be going too far. I would add, too, and and this is something I want to talk about, that there may be symbolism in the lamp itself because these would undoubtedly be oil lamps. Uh, I have a little replica in my office. It's a little handheld oil lamp. You put oil in, it's got a wick, and you light the wick. And as long as there's oil, uh, you're going to have light. And obviously... uh, Oil is ever the symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And so uh, so we have a connection. So Jesus is not really teaching about the Holy Spirit, but later on as we come back with a fuller knowledge of Scripture, we can see that, you know, how is it that we really reflect the light of Jesus Christ? Well, it's because we're filled with the Spirit, and he's given us an inexhaustible source of uh, fuel, as it, as it were, uh, so that we can burn brightly. Uh, and then Jesus makes this point. He says in verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The sense here is, even as the lamp just mentioned, this little lamp in the house that's in the city, that's on the hill, that can be seen from quite a distance, uh, 
he goes, let your light shine. What are your good works? Well, the word for good is a clue. It doesn't really emphasize the quality or the quantity of your works immediately. When we think of works, you know, we have a certain way of approaching language as an American people or as a, as a Central California people. You know, I mean, different words suggest different things to different people. And uh, when we hear works, we immediately, or I immediately think of things you do for the Lord. You know, I, I usher, I teach the Bible, I do, you know, these things for the Lord. My good works. But the word really is a word that is used more of attractiveness, uh, not activity so much as our attractiveness. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which we always want to keep our focus on the context wherever we're at in Scripture, uh, the attractiveness has to do with, first and foremost, our Christian character. It is the characteristics that are true of you because you are a believer. And remember, we've been talking about this. In one sense, we look at these and we strive for them, but in another sense, Jesus says, no, this is what you are as a Christian. I mean, you need to, ref you know, this is a refresher. You are pure in heart. You are hungering after if righteousness. If you're a Christian, these are the things that are true of you. We might move away from them, uh, but they, they are true of, of Christians. It's kind of like, uh, in, in another illustration, Paul the Apostle says we should maintain unity. We don't create unity. We, we already have unity. When you get saved, you're united with all other Christians in the world and all those that have come before you. There is a unity, and then we break it down. You know, we, we, and so then we can get back to it. And so these things are true of it. They're not high and lofty standards that we have to really try to achieve. They're things that can be true of us if we will just walk by faith and realize that. And so he says, this is who you are as a believer. The Beatitudes shining through you in a dark world are what he's talking about. And it shows others the beauty that Jesus has created within us. That's, that's really his point here. The supernatural transformation of your character as a Christian can only be attributed to the work of God. Remember, as we went through the Beatitudes, we uh, hopefully I said every time, these are not natural characteristics. They are supernatural characteristics that God creates in you so that somebody looks at you and says, wow, I can't do that, and I don't know how you do that. Uh, you know, this meekness that you have or this, this sense of righteousness or whatever. And, and so there's a, there's a sense that it's coming from another dimension. And that's why it can be said that men will glorify your Father in heaven. We just saw a few weeks ago that they, a lot of men will also persecute you. Uh, so that's a possibility. But what Jesus is pointing out here, not that men will always glorify you because you act this way. He just said they wouldn't. But the idea is that when they see that, it is undeniably something that comes from heaven. And, and so much so that they might even hate you for it because they don't want to deal with their own sin nature. In a sense, just as you have genetic traits from your earthly parents, for better or for worse, in Gino's case, it's for better, but uh, so when these spiritual character traits are evident, then people see that God is your father. Be, you know, and sometimes people don't immediately see this because they have a, a, a skewed view of who God is. You know, no, People don't really understand that God is a God of grace and mercy and love. They, they kind of think Jesus preached love and peace, and what, wouldn't the world be a better place if we all just believe that? But he is, in some sense, they think, different than God 
and and that God is really angry and bitter and he's just killing Canaanites wherever he finds them, you know, and that kind of a thing. And so so people don't they don't immediately recognize, but when you act graciously and mercifully, they do see something completely different than is seen anywhere else in the world, and they're drawn into the fact that this is coming from God and that this is who God really is. We talked about the Holy Spirit. You and I have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and therefore we have an unlimited and renewable spiritual energy resource. I like there's a new series of commercials by the PG&E saying that the future is renewable energy. And uh, so we have this renewable energy resource, unlimited. And as we spend time with Jesus, we absorb some of his glory, the Bible says. We, we see in a mirror darkly, but we go from glory to glory. It's similar to Moses, when he went up on the mountain, he'd come down and he'd be glowing from being in the presence of God. But then he put a veil on his face because he didn't want people to see that it was fading. It was a temporary glory from being temporarily in the presence of God. Paul the Apostle in Corinthians says, we're just the opposite. We have a permanent glory that doesn't fade because the, that was the law and this is grace. And, and so there is this glowing. And Jesus seems to indicate that you are going to shine forth, here's the point, unless you actively take steps to hide your light. And so all of this, what all this means is that if you're a Christian, you're going to shine in this dark world. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're the light in the house, in the city, on the hill that people see and are drawn to. That's who you are, unless you hide light. And a hidden light is, after all, still a light. It's still lit it's just useless to others who are lost and need to see it guide them. And this is the tie-in to the salt. Jesus said, salt is great unless it's lost its saltiness by exposure, and then it's not good for it. It's still salt. So no one's losing their salvation. You're still salt. You're still light. You're still a Christian. It's just that you're not accomplishing what God could accomplish through you. I was thinking about it. I hadn't thought about this for many, many years, um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, it'll make sense to you in just a second. I've got two stories to tell you. Right after Pam and I got saved, I, I remember we were at a garage sale. Uh, and uh, we used to go garage sailing all the time. But uh, an older woman came up to us, and she excused herself, and she asked us if we were Christians. And we were too young in the Lord to have... We didn't have the T-shirts yet or the socks or the shoes. You know, we didn't have any of that no sticker on our car or anything. I mean, we had just become Christians recently. And, and so we told her we were, and we talked to her a little bit. And, and I asked her, or Pam asked her, I can't remember which, why she would even ask us that. And, and she said, it was really cool for Pam, she says, she says, I was watching the way your wife was talking to you, and I could tell that there was something different about you. And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. You know, So we were all high. And uh, so then another time, I don't know if it was before or after that, I had a guy that I worked with, well, not worked with, but he was in real estate and I was in title insurance and uh, my dad had worked for his dad years ago. And so we, we knew each other for on and off for a while. His name was Rick Lazar. And I was coming out of the, I remember this very vividly. I was coming out of St. Bernardine's Hospital. I think I'd been visiting somebody. Uh, and Rick was walking by me and he, we said hi. And, and just out of nowhere, he said, he said something to the effect of, hey, what, what's happened to you? I go, what do you mean? He goes, man, you look different. You, you, you look almost radiant, he said. And I was like blown away. And I said, well, I became a Christian, you know, and stuff. And, and now, this was 
30 years ago, and nothing like that's happened to me since. <laughs> Which is kind of depressing, I mean, in one sense. But here's the point. Not, so I just want to, you know, I just want you, I don't want to put this in context that I'm not saying that I glow, you know, that I, yeah, that I'm the, I'm the radiant Christian here. This actually happened to us when we were first saved. And I think what God is telling me, was telling us and is telling us today is that this is actually possible. That not that you, if you looked at yourself in the mirror, you'd have to wear, you know, or your glasses would fog over or anything like that. But it really does happen that people look at you. I mean, they actually just look at you and God gives a supernatural sense that there is something different about your look, about your conversation. Uh, there's something different about you. This is, this is possible doesn't happen all the time. Maybe it should. I don't know. I'm going to grapple with that now that I've remembered these d light secrets from my past, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, so it, it's kind of interesting. So, so it's, and I was reading, th this came back to me because I was reading some examples of, you know, people who, I think it was Alexander McShane in Scotland, you know, he would walk by people and people would drop to their knees and beg for repentance and stuff. You know, so God can do these things. And you read that and you think, okay, well, I'm just not those guys. You know, I mean, these guys obviously have some kind of special anointing that is not available to the average Christian. And then I, the Lord reminds me, goes, no, you had this, or you could have this, or I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the Lord told me, but he, rem I reminded, he reminded me of this. And, and so I, at least I know it's possible. And not that we need to, it's not that we should strive to glow. <laughs> you know, it's like... I mean, you don't want people to look at you and say, hey, there's something wrong with you. What are you doing? I'm trying to shine for the Lord. <laughs> but but it is it does happen. It happens to just, you know, average new Christians. And, and you know, so it's an encouragement that God can shine through us. Uh, and it can be an obvious thing or it can be a more subtle thing. Uh, I, I just think the encouragement here, Jesus is saying, hey, uh, you can shine. If you're not, it's because you've taken active steps to hide your light. Now, what does that mean? It, does it mean that you're planning to hide your light or you have plot? No, but I think we just meditate on that and think, you know, Lord, in what ways might I be hiding the light that you've put in me? Am I not telling people? Am I not carrying my Bible? Am I, am I too much in the world? I mean, whatever it is, we have to pray about it and find out, you know, what is it that might be, what is my bushel? What is my basket? I'm still God's light, but no one seems to notice. And so what, what is it that I need to lift away from or off of my life? Because the Lord promised me that I would be that light. And if I'm not, now I may be and I just don't realize it. You know, I, others may see this and, and be drawn. They're just not saying it. They're not saying, man, you, I, I just don't like being around you because you're so bright, you know, or something. But it, it's just a good exhortation for us. And what I like about this whole section of Scripture is what Jesus is telling us is this is who you really are. This is who you are, not who you're striving to be. This is who you are unless you've pulled away from being this, unless you're, you know, like salt, too much exposed to the world, unless you're putting something over your light so that other people can't see it. This is who you are. And, and in many cases, for, for myself, for example, it means getting back to 
what was maybe going on in your life when you were first saved in terms of a, maybe a sense of abandonment or faith or whatever it would be. Uh, and, you know, I, I admit that over the years, you know, years, age, worries, those things, they, they have a tendency to pile up. You, and sometimes you're, you're still walking by faith, but you're a little bit different than when you were first saved. And uh, Jesus could come, your car could be wrecked, your house could be on fire, you know, nothing bothered you back then you know and you didn't have a a sense of 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 anything other than the lord's presence and and so i think for me i have to struggle with that and so for you you have to struggle with am am i under a bushel my you know what's my basket what's my bushel amen all right praise the lord